Okay, good morning everybody, and uh, really uh, a great privilege to stand here and have the opportunity to preach on you know, what is one of the most well-known passages of scripture, and uh, we'll come on to that in a moment. My name is Morris, I'm one of the elders here. Uh, you may not see me so regularly because uh, I represent the part of our vision statement about making Jesus famous in Ipswich and the nations. Well, that's the bit that I'm involved in with my wife, Rachel, uh, together with our younger son, Sam. We've been in Sweden for about three months, had a very, very challenging but significant time ministering among churches in the Nordic nations. And then we were in a, uh, I was at a conference very recently in Poland with about 600 leaders, um, obviously deeply impacted by events in the east of Europe. Um, yeah, but again, it felt like a very significant time. Later this month, we'll be in the Netherlands at a, uh, a conference with our churches gathering together, a Dutch language conference, which is key for us. We really want to start expressing our DNA and our values through the different languages. And, uh, and then we're off to Serbia for uh, three or four months. Uh, my first duty in Serbia is to officiate at a wedding. So that's going to be an interesting experience. But here we go. We're going to uh, look at this very well-known passage of scripture in Ephesians chapter 6, pick it up from verse 10, looking at what we uh, understand to be a, a description of the spiritual armor, the armor of God. We've broken this into three sections. I'm going to be uh, preaching through the, verse, the first three verses, and then we're going to continue on from there. So let's just read those verses together. So it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what I'm going to tackle right now. And uh, I'm going to say this. From a, a minister of the church, perspective, from my perspective, uh, from my perspective as a minister of the Word of God, I will not often preach a more important sermon than the sermon I'm going to preach today. You may have your own evaluation about that. But my evaluation is that what we're going to be looking at today is so significant for us individually, corporately, as a church, as a culture, as society, that you know, I'm, I will today be taking my stand against the powers of the evil one. So you're going to watch me stand, okay? <laughs> and I'm praying that you will join me. But Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. And I always remember Terry Virgo commenting that the Christian life is not like a battle. It is a battle, okay? <laughs> we are in a battle. In fact, many of, uh, most of the Bible heroes are soldiers, if you read through, they're fighters. It's not Aristotle or Plato or Socrates. It's David, Joshua, Gideon, Caleb, fighters, warriors, soldiers. Paul says to Timothy, you have got to fight. The Christian life is a battle. Fight, be strong, stand firm, put on the armor, wrestle, gird up your mind, get hold of attitudes, be disciplined, Press through. It's a call to intentional behavior. 
If we are passive, we'll get blown away. Okay? So why fight the good fight? Because if you don't, you will lose. Now that sounds like a, a strong thing to say from a grace-based church that relies on the full and obedient sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our salvation. Hallelujah. But we've got to fight the fight. Because if you don't, you'll lose. You'll get blown away. Fight, because success is not automatic. Okay? If you do, you can win. Fight the good fight. It's a fight you can win. Jesus has made everything available to us so that we can win. Okay? It's not fight the awful fight or the desperate fight, but fight the good fight. It is a fight worth fighting. So I'm going to be looking at what it means to be strong and take our stand. And then we've got, in the next two sermons, we'll be looking at what it means to be prepared and then what it means to be fearless. But we're going to look at what it means for us to be strong, take our stand, put on the full armor, because our struggle is against the devil. We're in a struggle. We're in a fight. And Paul says, take your stand. He repeats it later in verse 13. Put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. None shall pass. Stand. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Philippians 1, 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Again, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Be on the alert, alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men. In other words, be mature, be strong. Therefore, Philippians 4, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now why this exhortation to stand firm? Why, why are we called to fight? Because we are in a struggle. We are in a struggle, not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities of the evil one. And we have just heard that he is a defeated enemy. Okay? He, is, he has defeated, uh, Jesus has defeated the enemy of our souls. But we are in a struggle for our culture, for our households, for our children. We are in a struggle for the souls of men and women. And so what is the fight in our day? What are we standing against? And this is where I just feel this is so very important for us. Because it really is very, very simple. I will say this. Our fight, our struggle today, is for the absolute truthfulness, sufficiency, and final authority of Scripture. That's our fight today. That's our struggle. Hope Church Ipswich, our whole family of churches, relational mission, New Frontiers is built squarely on this value that the Bible has a central place in governing doctrine, practice, ethos, patterns of church life, as well as ethics and morality for life in the world. So I do want you to listen very carefully. 
because I do believe this is centrally important for us. If the Bible is not the final authority in these matters, then what is? What is defining your life values if it's not the Word of God? If the Bible does not define for us what it means to be a man or a woman, what it means to be married, what it means to be a family, then what or who is defining these things? Now, you don't need me to tell you that British culture in the 21st century has let go of the biblical definition of these things. The government has let go of the biblical definition of these things. The Bible no longer has the authority that is that has had for many centuries in our land in determining our moral and ethical principles. And this has happened very quickly. I would say within half of my lifetime. So my parents' generation would have broadly, whether they were believers or not believers, would have broadly agreed with the general moral and ethical values of Scripture. Yet today we hear that such views are not deemed worthy of respect in today's society, to quote a recent court judgment. So we're talking about viewpoints and understandings that have been consistent for thousands of years. Through the church age, through the New Testament era, through the Old Testament era, and only in my lifetime have these things been challenged in my culture in this way. So I say... God bless the Queen. God bless her. Now, she appears alone in the establishment in holding firmly and publicly to gospel values. And it will be a sad day when she passes to glory. Okay? The handbrake will be fully off. There'll be nothing to stop our culture careering out of control downhill. Now, a character called J.D. Unwin, not someone you may be familiar with, but he was a 1930s Oxford uh, professor of anthropology. I don't, there's nothing to say that he was a Christian believer, but he studied 86 cultures for factors that led to their flourishing or their demise. And according to Unwin, after a nation becomes prosperous, it becomes increasingly liberal concerning sexual morality. Consequently, Unwin claims, it loses its cohesion, its impetus, and its purpose, and this process is irrevocable. So his conclusion from the data was that abandoning... So this is, I say, this is an Oxford professor, not particularly banging a drum for Christian morality, but his conclusion was, from studying 86 cultures, was that abandoning premarital sexual restraint and postmarital monogamy represented the tipping point into the collapse of culture with, he says, monotonous regularity. And within three generations or a hundred years, his studies show that those cultures had entirely disappeared. So Unwin highlights three consequences of crossing the tipping point of embracing unbridled sexuality. Number one, an abandonment of absolute monogamy, which is one man, one woman marriage for life. Number two, the abandonment of belief in God. And number three, so this was written 100, nearly 100 years ago, 
the rapid loss of rational thinking. You can believe what you want, irrespective of facts or logic. <laughs> is this sounding familiar? Is it familiar? This is how he wrote this 100 years ago. So recent commentators have attempted to describe what, for us, a potential free fall of society by 2050 might look like. And typically from Unwin's work, this would take the form of either anarchy and survival of the fittest, or a civil war, or imposition of a totalitarian government, or we will be subsumed by a stronger country or culture. And Unwin says, many of the cultures studied thought that they would be the exception, but they were not. So our culture has untethered itself from all biblical norms, even with the church, the historic and orthodox interpretation of scripture is being constantly challenged. All right? Now we here, believe it or not, in Hope Church Ipswich, we consider ourselves to be a very traditional church. Our traditions stretch right back to the New Testament church. Go even beyond Henry VIII. <laughs> we hold fast to one Bible. We hold fast to two testaments. Three creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, four councils in Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon. All this established within the first three to five centuries of the history of the church. That's where our traditions are rooted, right the way, trace our trajectory right the way back through to the New Testament in that way. We're holding fast to this. We're standing. We affirm the authority of Scripture, meaning that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such way that to believe or disobey any words of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. The clarity of Scripture, meaning that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. The necessity of Scripture, meaning that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining spiritual life, and for knowing God's will, though not necessary for knowing that God exists, he's given all sorts of evidence for that, or knowing something about God's character and moral laws. We stand in the common grace of God. The sufficiency of Scripture, meaning that Scripture contains all the words of God that he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. This book has the power not only to inform, but to reform and to transform lives. It is supernatural in origin, eternal in duration, divine in authorship, infallible in authority, inexhaustible in meaning, universal in readership, unique in revelation, personal in application, and powerful in effect. Amen? Here we stand. What does that mean for us today? Well, we'll get onto the armor of God in the next couple of sermons in detail, but you will have noted, I'm sure, when you've read through these verses, that except for one, all the elements of armor are primarily for defense. A belt that you hang all your weapons on, a breastplate, ready feet to run away or to run towards, shield, helmet, except for one in verse 17, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is 
This is our offensive weapon. And the devil is trying to take it away from us. And at the moment, I would say in our country, he's doing a pretty good job. Okay? If we stop fighting for the authority of the Word of God, the authority of Scripture, we have nothing left to fight with. He's disarmed us. He's taken away our weapon. This is what we fight with. This is why I say I will rarely preach a more important sermon. Are you with me? I'm not being too intense for you, am I? <laughs> it really matters, you know. I really feel I'm, I really feel I'm standing, I'm standing bef- bef- you know, before dear friends and brothers and sisters. I'm standing before powers and principalities here. On our behalf, together we're making a stand. None shall... No. This is the enduring revelation. Whether we like it or not, John Piper says, God chose to reveal himself in a book. Read it. Intensively, extensively, read it. Get a book printed on paper. Read it. Love it. Consume it. So, back to this conference I was at quite recently in Poland, and we were having a bit of a forum, a discussion, Q&A. I was with Mike Betts, who's sort of one of my co-team members, and Mike is fantastic on his feet when people are throwing questions at him. And someone asked this question, how should we respond as God's church to this critical moral and ethical decline in all of our cultures across Europe in the 21st century? What do we do about this? I've been, it's a small confession, I've been quite critical of previous generations when I've seen things change, you know, and the, uh, the, the influence of the church declining. I'm thinking, why didn't they do something about it? Now I've lived through it. it felt, I felt almost powerless to do anything about it. But all this is changing. Laws are changing. Definitions are changing in my lifetime. And it seems like I can't do anything about it. It's a critical decline. And Mike answered so very helpfully using the parable of the prodigal son. Now, you're familiar with this. And uh, in Luke 15, I just, you know, you know the story. Uh, father had two sons, and one of them says, give me my inheritance. In other words, I want to treat you as though you're dead. Give me my inheritance. And he goes off, and he squanders it all in wanted living. Comes to his senses, comes back, and the father accepts him. You know the story, okay. So consider the prodigal son. He considers the father to be dead and that he can claim his inheritance. He completely unhinges morally and ethically in speech and behavior and attitude and values. It's a bit like our culture. Yeah? Considers the church is dead. God is dead. And just off on a wild ride, morally and ethically. Consider the father. What does he do? He stands. He doesn't move. He doesn't run after the son. He doesn't try to make it easier for him. He doesn't change the terms of their relationship so that it will make it easier for the son to come back. He stands where he is, and he waits prayerfully and patiently 
Now, when you read through this parable, there's a verse that very few of us in the West would give much weight to. This is really fascinating. Someone did some studies on this. So I'm going to read, I'll read a couple of verses. Luke 15, 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Now, a study was done of 100 Bible students in America, and they said, read the story and retell it. And then we'll make a note of the points that you pull out from the story. And uh, only six out of 100 made reference to the fact that there was a severe famine in the whole country. They, they sort of considered it to be almost a superfluous piece of information. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he, he'd spent all his money, uh, you know, he'd, uh, he'd lost his means of independence, um, there was a famine, and then da da da. da. No, only six of them mentioned the famine out of 100. They did the same exercise in the east of Europe. And 84 out of 100 mentioned that there was a severe famine because they had lived through famine. They're, they're, it was very strong in their cultural memory. Actually, the famine, now that is a big deal. That is a big deal. They knew what it meant. And I just want to say to you today, Brothers and sisters, I mean, I'm, I'm preaching with you. I'm not preaching at you, because I know this is all in your heart. Okay? We are living in a famine today. Okay? Amos 8 and verse 11. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. We're in a famine. We're in a famine of the words of God. That's why they're so important in the context of this parable. In the individual interpretation of the parable, this mighty famine is the yearning of the soul's unsatisfied desire, the absence of its true Food, of the bread that comes down from heaven. And in its wider range, it is the craving of humanity, the craving of society, of our culture, for what it cannot find when it's tried everything else, when its appetites have been, are not satisfied, when their supply of alternatives have dried up. The famine, not of bread and of water, but of hearing the word of the Lord, the want of words of comfort from the eternal Father to protect and sustain the life of his children. Our culture is the prodigal son, the lost son, who considers God to be dead, and he is running away and living wildly, but the famine is here. One day, he's going to come to his senses and he's going to make his way back. I prophesy. One day he's going to make his way. The culture, our society, is going to make his way back. If we stand. If we don't stand, who would he make his way back to? If the father had not stayed where he was, how would he have known how to find his way back? 
We know many who are turning away from the church, running away with the culture of the land. Like the Father, we take our stand and we do not move. We wait patiently and prayerfully, full of compassion and mercy, but we do not move. We take our stand, we stay strong on the word of God. That is the most loving and caring thing we can do. Because if we move and say, yeah, no, okay, we don't need this. We can adjust, we can adapt, get in step with the world. As I, remember, I always remember David Cameron saying that. The church is to understand that it's got to get in step with the world. That's the last thing I want to do, David. Honestly, it's the last thing. No, you know, we're, going to, we're not going to move. We're going to stand here on the word of God. I'm sorry, if that makes me unpopular, I'm going to stand on the word of God. That's the way it is, you know? That's the way it is. Okay, so how are we going to do this, friends? Well, here we go. Number one, know your Bible and stand by it. Okay? Please, I'm appealing to the younger generation, particularly you get information fed to you in all sorts of different ways. Find a paper copy of the Bible and treasure it. Absolutely treasure it. It's a strange thing. When you're familiar with reading um, a paper Bible, in your mind's eye, you can always picture where it is on a page when you're thinking of it, because you're pouring over this. It's like honey on your lips. It's the life of God for you. Know your Bible and stand by it. This is going to make you, I, I promise you, with my whole heart, it's going to make you very unpopular. Okay? And it's going to make you very uncool and very unfashionable in today's culture. You are going to offend your culture. Perhaps some of us will lose friends. Maybe some of us will lose jobs. Maybe some of us will be charged by the police of our land just for standing. Just for standing. I was in Stockholm and uh, a whole load of uh, Congolese refugees had come back to Sweden. They actually were part of a church that had been planted by the Swedish Pentecostal movement out in Africa and they were coming back. And I was just saying, look, you need to know, just by standing still, you're going to offend your culture. Because culture is just, woof. <laughs> and they're going to look at you, and you're going to offend them, because you're still saying, no, we still believe this, actually. We still believe it. You're going to offend people just by standing still. When I, was, I had a, a, a previous a short and inglorious career in the military, I had 10 years in the Royal Air Force, I remember a key moment for me. I was a young believer. I must have been in my mid-twenties. I was in the officer's mess. We were all having our beer and chatting. And one very, very influential guy in the group, we somehow got on to talking about church and matters of faith. And he said, well, surely, he said, no intelligent person today still believes the Bible for today. You know? And this was a big moment for me. You know, it's a bit like the life of Brian moment. We're all individuals. Oh, I'm not. You know, I had to say, no, I do believe I do, I do. By faith, I believe this is the word of God. I don't believe it by the fact that I can prove everything, because I don't know everything. But I believe, I, by faith, I believe this is the word of God. It was a huge moment for me. That guy actually asked me to be his best man. So he didn't lose respect for me. But I had to, I had to make my stand. I had to say, no, hang on. You know, we must stay strong and take our stand. Why? Because the world needs us to do this. This is my appeal. It's not, oh, we've got to stay true. Yes, we do have to stay true and hold firm to what we have believed and blah, blah, blah. And all that is all very important. But if you love the world, stand firm. Don't move. Stand true to the word of God because 
If we move, they don't know where to go. They won't know where to go. We have got to stand strong. One day the famine will hit. Where will they turn? Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. To whom else can we turn to? We've got to be careful of the attempts to try and make God in our own image. And this is what I feel the church is vulnerable to. Oh, you know, surely God loves everybody, so he'll include everybody. But we can't make God do what we want him to do, be what we want him to be, and say what we want him to say. God has spoken. He has spoken fully in Jesus, and he has spoken fully in his word. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word endures. Here we stand. We can do no other, so help us God. So, final comment. I hope you get my heart in this, and then we'll just uh, pray a little bit as we wrap this up. Isaiah 40. If, I, if you get a few moments, just read the whole of Isaiah 40. It's incredibly comforting in today's age. But let's pick out a few verses. Verses 3 to 8. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, so in this famine wilderness, this desert of truth, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is what we long to do here, folks. You've come here for all sorts of reasons today. We're making a way in a desert for the people of Ipswich to come and meet God. Okay? We're making a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. Not such a difficult job in Suffolk. Uh, you know, but, uh, the rough ground shall become level. The rugged places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers. The flowers fall. Because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Whew. Okay, folks, so you just need to know, that's where we are as the elders of your church, as ministers of the gospel in this place. We're not moving from here. Okay, we're not moving from here. Where else can we go? We're not going to be clever. We're not going to be sophisticated. We're not going to try and make up fresh interpretations. You hear people today, it's such rubbish, saying, oh, you know, um, we, we, we're trying to understand and interpret things in the way that it's never been understood and interpreted before. I'm not interested in that. Tell me the old, old story, please. I want to know how it's always been understood. I want to know how you want to try and understand it today. Yes, we want to need to make it... Uh, present it in a way that today's culture can understand, but I'm not going to change anything that's in this. And I'm going to stay entirely consistent with the way this has been taught and presented by the evangelical church over 2,000 years since its birth, and the moral and ethical principles that are in here that you can trace right, way, way back through our history, beyond even there. Why am I going to change that today? I'm not going to change it. 
Okay? I'm not going to change it. Culture will turn back, must turn, culture must turn back to God, must turn back to the God who has not moved and takes its stand or it will disappear. Okay? It will go. We'll be blown away. When the culture does turn back, when society does turn back to the church, remember the prodigal son. Remember that story. Don't be like the older brother. Don't be like the Pharisee judging. We have got to, I tell you, when people start coming back from the, the world, the chaos of this world, we're going to need to have such hearts of tender mercy and compassion because they're going to be a mess. They're going to be such a mess. More than we've ever known in our personal histories in church life. We're going to be picking up people who are absolutely trashed by the values of this culture. And we're going to have to be so patient and so tender to help them rediscover who they are, their identity in God, rebuild what it means to be a responsible member of society. It's going to take years. And we're going to be there. We're not going to move. We're going to stand. Okay? Individuals turning back to church. Okay, you need to know, if you, if you are at sea at the moment in terms of some of the values that we're talking about here, some of the identities that our culture has moved on from the Bible about, and, and you're thinking, oh, the church has not been very loving and very caring, you need to know the reason that we're standing firm is because we love and we care. That's why. It is not loving and caring to move away from this word, just to accommodate something that you know, your society has told you you should be considering. <laughs> and it's not, if that sounds unloving, believe me, that's not. It's the most loving thing I can do is to bring you back to here. So come back. Come back to your God. Come back to Jesus. Come back to his truth. Go and make disciples and teach them everything to obey everything as I have commanded you, says Jesus. Not go and make disciples and let them do whatever they want. We forget that half of the verse sometimes. Teach them to obey everything as I have commanded. Where is it commanded? It's commanded in here. So come back. It's difficult. It's painful. But we're standing here because we love you. It's the most loving thing we can do. Here you will find grace and mercy and compassion and understanding as best as we know how. We'll get it wrong sometimes. We're only human. But... We're not going to move, okay? That's the most loving thing we can do. Amen? Shall we pray? If you feel able, let's stand. <laughs> there was a clue in the title. Father God, we recognize that we're, this is not a personal thing. We're not, our challenge is not with, with flesh and blood. It's not with the government of our day. It's not with friends who have abandoned method, moral and ethical values that we consider dear. Our struggle is against the enemy of our souls. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have uh, decisively defeated our enemy. You have cut off his head. He no longer has the power over us that he did have. That now, I am no lo he's no longer my master. Sin is no longer my master. I'm, I'm a slave to righteousness. I'm not a slave to these things anymore. These things are all true. Lord, we are now wrestling for our culture. We're wrestling for our society. We're wrestling for our town. We're wrestling for the hearts and souls and minds of dear friends, brothers, sisters, family members who are being swept along by precipitous 
moral decline and ethical abandonment in our culture. And we want to say to you, God, by your strength, we will not move. We're going to stand on what we know to be true by the revealed and inspired word of God. And we pray for your help in these things, Lord. You know it's not going to be easy. You know, for the emerging generation, this is going to be very, very difficult. We see it, God, to stand up and say, no, here I stand. I can do no other. It's going to be painful. You're going to lose reputation, lose respect, lose friends, lose employment opportunities, lose all sorts of things simply by saying we're not going to move. But Lord, we believe this is the most loving and caring thing we can do for this town is to be like the father in the prodigal son and just say, no, we're still here. We're still here. When you turn back, we're gonna, there's a famine out there. And you're gonna, you, all of these things, all of these needs, all of these things you're wanting to see satisfied, you're not going to find it out there, but you will find it here, and we're not moving. We'll still be here. We're going to stand here. Our arms are open. We're gonna, when, when we see you turn back, we're going to be running to you to embrace you and gather you back in because this is where you belong. But we can't move. We can't move from this. We will take our stand against the powers and authorities of the evil one for the sake of the, the purity of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of our Christ, and for the sake of the integrity of his word, we will stand here because the word of the Lord endures forever, forever. And Lord, we just pray. I just pray for any conflicted heart in this room right now. Just you just need to know how much God loves you. And that culture does not love you. It's in it for itself. God's in it for you. Turn to him. We pray for you. We pray for conflicted hearts here. We pray for those who just are struggling with some of these issues that we've not explicitly named, but we all know what we're talking about here. We pray for you. We love you. And we want you to know the love and the grace and the healing and the identity of God. And it will not be found in these things that the world is telling you it will be found in. It won't be found there. You'll only find yourself in God. Because he made you. He created you. To be who you are. Jesus, will you help us, we pray. Help us, Lord. We just feel this is a massive struggle. It's a massive struggle. Give us strength to uphold your word. Jesus, be glorified as we do so. Give strength and power in our day of need, we pray, Lord Jesus, because all people are like grass, but your word stands forever, and we want to stand on the truth and authority and power of Scripture. And we pray this for the glory of God, in the name of Jesus, by the power of his Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.